Hi, and welcome to the Overflow Podcast. I'm Chuck Ammons, teaching pastor at Overflow Church in Brandon, Florida, and we are here to help you receive the Father's love and to release it to everyone you encounter everywhere. Wherever you're listening from today, your God adores you. I pray this message elevates and ignites your faith. On this podcast, you will find biblical messages to activate your faith, as well as our You Asked For It series, where we address your questions about trusting God's goodness as Father and living out His fullness as beloved sons and daughters. To find out more about Overflow Church, visit us at myoverflowchurch.com or on Facebook at Overflow Church Brandon. We'd also love to encourage you to check out our book, Life in the Overflow, and its accompanying devotional at Amazon.com. So, last week we talked about how God has built a residence of peace for us. It's not just our inheritance, but it is our permanent residence. And that means if we live in this place, we are not passive roommates. We are active participants in keeping that place and establishing that presence as peace. We walk to and live from that place. Romans 12:18 says, "If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people." So today we're going to talk about how to establish trust in the midst of conflict. We, we established last week that conflict happens, and if we look at it from a peacemaking perspective, we can see that it is an opportunity for growth. And so we're going to get very practical and address what causes conflict among us, not in a general sense with groups of people, but very relationally, because that's really how we live. If some guy drives by you in, um, on the street on Bloomingdale, and it's just like not a great time of day, and he doesn't like the way you're driving, and he tells you so with his hand, then it might stick with you for a day at most, maybe an hour or so, you let it go, right? But if somebody does that to you that you really love, that's going to stick with you a minute, right? If it's your roommate, you're like, we have a problem now because we have to live with each other. This is not a good thing. If it's your spouse, also not good. (laughs) So listen, we're going to talk about what it means to be in relationship and deal with this, what causes conflict between you and another person your spouse, your coworker, your boss, your child, your parent, your sibling, your neighbor. These are relationships, and we can't just neglect them. And what we're not going to do with this message today is we're not going to say, oh man, that's what happened to me. That's what they did. They really need to hear this message. I'm going to send them a link. That would be a passive roommate. You are an active participant, which means we're going to look at this message together today and say, what was my part? I'm going to have some understanding here and establish some new agreements here. I'm going to look at it and say, this is how our relationship became severed and torn. 
And I will walk in obedience and accordance with God's word that said, from Romans 18, or 12, 18, it's still up there, to live at peace with all people as far as, and that means at whatever length or distance is required. It depends on, that means however it is determined or contingent on me. That means my behavior, my heart, my desire, my willingness. See, you don't have all, you don't bear all the responsibility of what happened in conflict, and neither do they. They don't bear all of the responsibility. See, the enemy wants to put one of us on the hook for that, you or them. But Jesus said, no, no, no. I hammered a new hook into the cross, and that's where it belongs. Because of my forgiveness, nobody has to hang everything on them. You can hang it on me. I got you covered. So how do we get here? How does conflict happen? What, where does it start? Conflict breeds in what's called an expectation gap. Andy Stanley calls it a trust gap, but it's this um, difference between expectation and reality. Simply put, if I say I'm going to be here at 3 o'clock and I don't arrive until 3.30, you had an expectation. And I did not meet the reality of my lateness, did not meet that expectation, and now we have a conflict. Now, if you were really needing me to be there at the time that I said, would that make you feel threatened? Something t was taken from you in that moment that I didn't honor what we said and agreed upon? Yes, it does. We need to mind the gap, as they say if you've ever visited London. Mind the gap. We need to mind the gap. And we have an opportunity to put one of two things in there. Every time there's an expectation gap, we fill it with something. We either fill it with suspicion or trust. And I believe that suspicion is the thing that is causing the um, breakdown of our culture in America. We meet every single thing with suspicion. I'm suspect of this person, this political party, this whole thing that's happening. We have fear covering all of our decisions. We think it's discernment and it's wisdom, but it's not. This is not a holy thing. Discernment comes from the Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit will always call us to peace with people, not to rant and rave about them on Facebook or in our hearts, okay? Nor in our hearts. He will call us to peace. And so this veil of skepticism and suspicion is bred in this expectation gap because something has to be filled there when there's a conflict. So how can we look at this? What's a, a visual? I love visuals. So how do we look at this expectation gap? Dave Ramsey, um, I was a student of his from Financial Peace University yeah. 10 years ago. It's a good thing. And so he um, talks about how he raised his kids. And we did the same thing. And you guys are like, what is this rope for? <laughs> Please explain. <laughs> so here's the thing. In relationships, you are tethered or tied to one another. This is a holy and a healthy thing that you would be tied in relationships to your kids, to your parents, to your spouse, to your friends. 
This is good when it's healthy, when it's not dysfunctional. And so these ties come around. And so when my kids were born, we had, we shared with them as they were older, what this tie looks like. They get one end and they are tethered to us by the other. And this is good because it provides safety for them. They can mess up and we can pull them back in. Say, so this is a good place for you to fail because you're okay and we can teach you and draw you in closer. And this is what the Lord does with us. And what it means is as we build trust and trustworthiness, this, they get to take it further. They get freedom in exchange for trust. But if they're caught in a pattern of some behavior that's not peacemaking, not true to their nature and their identity and who they are, then we draw the line in for them. Come on closer. You forgot who you were for a second, and my job is to remind you. Now, when there's a big gap between us, this is probably too long for me to work this out. So, when there is a gap between us, I can fill that. So, say my kid is caught in a pattern of lying. Kids mostly go through a pattern of lying. They just try their um, hand at different things and, and want to be sneaky or whatever. I don't really know. But they, they go through this. And so as they go through this pattern of lies, we have two options. We can start speaking over them what they're doing and causing that to become who they are. Or we can fill it in with trust. And so my job as a parent is to say, come closer. And that's not so I can get a better aim or a better angle. That is not it. That is not a peacemaking strategy. The Lord draws us closer so we can look into his eyes and he can remind us of our true identity in him, even when he doesn't see it. Even when we don't see it, rather. He always sees it. But when we don't see it, he says, let me show you what I see. And so as we draw our kids in closer... We say, hey, you've had this pattern of lying. This is not who you are. That's not your true identity. So let me remind you that you are a person of integrity, of great integrity and character. That is the legacy of our family. And even if it hasn't been, that will be your legacy as you declare over them. This is your inheritance, integrity. And so what I've seen, does it match this? And so I'm going to get nearer to you because you need my help in reminding you who you are and being restored. And what happens is there are consequences. That means i got to pull this in a little bit more. You're not going to have as much freedom as you once had because we need to be closer together while we walk through this. It strengthens our relationship, and we actually end up better together as a parent-child relationship than we did had we not gone through that. It strengthens our bond. They know I'm for them. And I know that I have their heart. And so then when I let it out, I can let it out faster because we've walked through that together. How does this work when it's in a spouse relationship or a friend relationship when you have kind of equal um, playing fields? You go together. You walk towards one another. If somebody else is very staunch in their position, then I'm going to call you the more mature one, and you are going to walk closer to them, even if they stay in one place. Whoever is more mature, move first. 
There you go. If you move first, you know you're the more mature one. Hallelujah. Race to each other. Race to be first. Race to be the mature peacemaker, the one who walks in the Holy Spirit. They'll get there. So we get to fill that with something. If I were to fill that void, that gap with my daughter, with suspicion, my narrative to her is going to be different. You always lie. You've been doing this since you were two years old. It's because two-year-olds do that. You never tell me the full truth. You're always withholding something. You probably will be like this the rest of your life. My words are declaring and have authority over her destiny, her future, and her history. I better watch how I come in. Am I going to fill that with trust about who God says she is? Or am I going to fill it with suspicion? Even if that's the pattern that I've seen. My job as a peacemaker is to choose trust all the time. Conflict breeds in this expectation gap. Sometimes who I am, what I've experienced, and what I see will make it difficult for me to trust. And I get that. We get that. But by doing this, trust becomes a choice. Our choice will determine how much relational equity we build. So we have to choose trust. How much relational equity do we build? And it also says this. If there's a gap or a pattern, okay, and we need to draw in closer, we're going to agree to choose trust. And if something comes and erodes my trust, then I'm going to come directly to you. If something happens with my spouse, I'm going to come directly to him. I'm not going to go seek counseling on my own. I'm not going to go have a talk with my girlfriends. I'm going to come to my husband and say, this is not your character. This is not who I know you to be. Tell me what's going on. I want to understand and call out God's destiny in you and remind you of who you are. Because I think you forgot for a second. You forgot what I've seen and known about you. And so let's move closer. And what we're not going to do in this expectation gap is imply motive. That's one of my favorite things Pastor Lynn has taught me. Don't imply a negative motive to something. Most people don't have malice in their hearts. They just misunderstand. And so as we move, let's talk about how our choice determines the health of relationship and what, um, what causes conflict. What are the four things that cause conflict? Ken Sandy is the foremost authority on peacemaking. He has a book called Relational Wisdom, really good. He also has Peacemaker. Um, he talks about these four categories and how conflicts reside in each of these. And in them, there's this expectation gap, this place where we have trust, put trust or suspicion, as Andy Stanley talks about. So... When trust is being built, we build peace and assumes goodwill and good intention, and it withholds judgment. So when we come into these places, that's what we need to see. We're going to fill those gaps. So the first one is misunderstanding resulting from poor communication. 
That happens, right? We as a church, when I first got here, didn't have the best record of communicating. But we filled that gap to build trust. For the last four years, we've poured resources in it. We've put time into it. And so now that's become one of our strengths. And it's because it's important that we as a church have trust in each other, isn't it? And that's a very easy thing to step in and say, oh, we can fix that. That's an easy one to build trust, an easy place to build trust. So you might have to pour some resources into um, if there's poor communication between you and your spouse. You may need to go to counseling. You may need to consider some of those options. There's also poor communication with us and the Lord. And that's funny, right? Does anybody think he's a poor communicator? No, he's not. (laughs) He said it. He says it. He will keep saying it. He does a good job of communicating with us so that we know his heart for us. But we are not great at receiving communications from him sometimes, right? So we need to pour into that relationship so that we can receive all the fullness of what he has. When I was far from the Lord, it's because I had this idea that he wanted me for my good works, all the good things that I was going to do. I missed kind of a lot of the Bible, if I'm being honest. It's like some of us who just, that text is too long, and so I'm just going to delete it. (laughs) You don't even read it. Too long. (laughs) I'm not going to read it. So some of this, we look at the Bible, we go, too long. What's the main Cliff's Notes? Don't do that. You miss the heart of God when you don't read the full thing, and we become biblically illiterate because we stopped reading the pages of his heart for us. And so for a long time, I thought all he wanted was this, compartmentalized. And he said, no, Aaron, you're my friend. I'm your friend, and I'm your friend, Aaron. That means that I laid down my life for you. That's how you know that I'm your friend. And if you want to be my friend, and man, I want you to be If you want to be my friend, then you'll do as I've done. This gives relational equity between you. There's a bond now that I can look back and say, Lord, you have my heart. And if there's any place that's lacking, I give it to you all over again. There is no place, no lack in him. He has given it all to us. The second one is differences in gifts, values, and callings. We sometimes consider this is not a value in me, so it's not, I'm going to minimize the value for you. And what's hard about this, especially in churches, is that we'll slap a Bible verse on something and say, this is inherently better because I have a Bible verse to put my point up there. And we've been doing that for years, which is why it excites me to my core that we take all the fivefold graces and elevate them equally. And say, this voice matters, this voice matters, this voice matters. Because they have importance in the kingdom and the advancing of God's kingdom. Disagreements, especially as believers, can feel threatening because the idea is perceived that there is an identifiable right and wrong. But what we're looking for here is unity, not uniformity. That means when we elevate each other's gifts, we say, yours is good. Yours is good. 
I'm excited about Pastor Chuck coming to preach next week. And this man has been off for three weeks. So you guys get your rest next week. I can't do what Pastor Chuck does. And that's good. We need his voice desperately in this church and in the body of believers in Brandon the Bay and beyond. We need him. And if I compared and thought my voice was, was worse than his or better than his, do you see how that could be a problem? We would have dysfunction here. But I celebrate my brother's voice. So when handled properly, disagreements in these areas can stimulate productive dialogue, encourage creativity, promote helpful change, and generally make life more interesting. Mature Christians rejoice in the diversity that God has given to his people. Amen? Amen. All right. Number three is competition of resources. This happens all the time. Have you ever had a budget meeting at work or at home? Yeah. They're not fun all the time, are they? We want to vie for what we think is better or more important, and so we become in competition with each other. It is as simple as the last bread roll at my house at dinner time. This is what it comes down to. Who gets it? They don't understand that there's still a freezer full of bread that I bought from Costco, and that Costco never seems to run out of this bread also if we need more. But they treat it sometimes like it's the last one on earth. And we do that too, and I think there's a part of us that forgets often that our God has limitless resources and capacity. And there is nothing he withholds from us. So it doesn't matter whether you're standing in this building, you're standing at home, or you're standing in your office. There is no end to God's resources for his children. There is no end. And he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. That means you've come, your heart is fully mine, and I release what's mine to yours because we have relational equity. You can be trusted with what I have. That is time that's taken there to build trust with the Lord, to ask for the things that have his heart and that have yours. Isn't that a beautiful thing to be built? He's not some genie, right? we got to build some things with him. There's no end to his resources. And what he promises is our daily need. And beyond that, he promises his presence always. We cannot love the gift more than the giver. Jesus says, all I have is yours. In Acts 4.32, it says, The company of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. What was happening? They had immense trust in God, and because of that, immense trust in each other. And they shared what they had. There was no competition over it. It was all the Lord's. John Piper says this, Two of the effects of believing in Jesus are that the heart is loosened in relationship to things and tightened in relationship to people. 
Man, hold on to that rope. Hold on to that rope when you're tethered to somebody. That friend, that spouse, that child. Hold on. They are worth it. That is the stuff of Jesus who holds on so tightly to us. Sinful attitudes is the last one. We're going to spend a lot more time in two weeks on this one. But I want to share what Oswald Chambers writes because it kind of succinctly sums it up. The attitude that will not allow the Son of God to rule is the attitude of my claim to my right to myself. This, not immorality, is the essence of sin. And it says, I will exercise my right to myself in this particular matter. Lord, help us. That is ego at the heart and core, isn't it? Selfishness. And it breeds conflict, that attitude. So this conflict happens in and out of the church. We're not immune to it as believers. But the purpose is to come into those places and establish peace, right? To heal the broken. And healing the broken, the evidence of that is a transformed person. So we have, if we've partnered with God to bring healing to them and restoration, then eventually <coughs> their help will be help in the church. If we don't do that, the, the, the dysfunction will be dysfunction in the church. We cannot bury our heads to this. See, what we want to do in our skepticism or in our trust, in our skepticism rather, is we want to fill that gap being suspicious of people and either nullify them, and that's our escape route. That's those of us who like to flight. That's what we want to do. We want to nullify them and say, it doesn't matter. It's fine. It's okay. No problem. I'm going to let it go again. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to nullify the effect of this person on me. And that is damaging to our souls. Or we vilify that person. They are the reason I'm like this. They are the reason that I do this. They, they, they. We make an enemy of a person. We are not called to vilify or nullify. We are called to stand in peace. And here's the thing. All of these strategies, if you are in a healthy relationship, they work. If you are in a dysfunctional relationship, and that means that there is um, substance abuse and addiction, there's demonic oppression, uh, or there is abuse of any kind, verbal, emotional, physical. These tactics won't really work because the issue doesn't stay the issue. It changes. There's something underlying there. And we're going to talk more about that in two weeks, how to supernaturally move into some of these dysfunctional places. That's what Jesus did. He took deeply dysfunctional people like me and restored them to help. So how do we um, establish that? We're not going to make an enemy of anybody, and we're not going to nullify them either. No vilify and not nullify. So how do we see the health of the system grow? Even um, How do we know that it's healthy? We know that it's healthy because the issue remains the issue. Now, this isn't to say that it might take you a while to figure out what the issue is. 
okay? But you don't tread, you don't go too into too many deep waters before you're able to come back and determine what it is. Now, in my early years, my husband, who would, like, get really close with the rope, he's like, tell me what's wrong. I want to know what's going on. And I'd be like, I don't really know. Let me talk this out and figure it out while we do it, right? <laughs> and I would eventually come to the conclusion of what it was, and we could work it out. And it probably didn't really have anything to do with him at all, but he was a, a good um, spouse in caring and, how, and establishing peace in my life. Now I go to the Lord, and I'm like, let me work this out with you. That way I can take it to whoever really is causing me this issue or who I have issue with. Because as far as it concerns me, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to live at peace with all people. So the issue remains the issue in a healthy relationship. And there is a way to measure if you have a healthy um, emotional intelligence, that's your EQ, like your IQ, your intelligent quotient. This is your emotional quotient. You can determine if you have a healthy um, intelligence, uh, emotional intelligence. So how do we do this? How we, let's see, let me find where I am. Our own comfort or discomfort with our emotions will be a strong factor in our ability to navigate conflict successfully, and this is how you determine what your emotional quotient is. How comfortable or uncomfortable are you with expressing your feelings or even saying that you have feelings or understanding your feelings? It's not mad, sad, happy, mad, sad, glad. There's more than that. There's a whole spectrum of loneliness and frustration and um, all kinds of things. And so how do you understand those and develop them? You need to name that thing so you know how to properly come to that person and say, man, I was really lonely. and You left me so early at this time in my life when I'm, I was struggling through this process or whatever. After you go to the Lord. And so... Our own comfort or discomfort will be a strong factor in that, how to navigate that. So we want to become more comfortable. And it's like building stamina. And we know that what happens in our physical bodies is typically an indicator of, of what's happening emotionally to us or spiritually to us. So if it's true in our physical bodies, typically the Lord is like, this is also how your soul works. This is also how your spirit works. Isn't he good like that? He kind of gave us a map. So in our bodies, if you've ever seen on the Olympics, you have those amazing athletes that run in the winter. They'll take like a minute and be like, <gasps> and then they're immediately talking to the sportscaster for like 30 seconds or a minute or whatever. And you're like, how the heck? If I ran that, it would take me like three days to recover to be able to talk to somebody. But they have built stamina over time. And you know the health of an athlete not just by the distance that they can go, but how quick their recovery is. In the same way, emotionally and spiritually, we can say, okay, here's the deal. I was hurt. I'm not going to hold on to that for five years like I used to. I'm going to come directly to that person. Why? Because trust has eroded. And I know that if I let it go for five years, it's going to be damaging to me. They probably already forgot about it. But it's going to damage my soul and I care for the soul that God's given me because I have other relationships that I need to develop here. And it will stunt those things. 
And so we give time and energy, just like you would if you were going like those couch to 5K things. I don't, are we okay? I'm on the couch. <laughs> I hear you. Jesus. Okay, I'm on the couch. I'm getting up to run my 5K. You have to start a little bit at a time to build that stamina. That's what we're doing by building healthy relationships, a healthy emotional intelligence. We're going to start small. We're going to start with the people that are closest to us. There is a trust equation here that says when we have built relational equity, that means that I can go fast and my cost is low. That's what Stephen Covey says. What does that mean? It means that if I have an issue with my sister who I've known for a long time and we've put a lot and built a lot of relational equity, then I don't have to share forever my whole heart about why something happened. She's like, no, 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 I got you. I know what your heart is. I know what you mean. You don't have to fill in all those gaps. We have relational equity. And if I do something that hurts or offends her, it won't cost as much if I quickly come back to her and say, man, I missed it. I'm so sorry. I saw in your eyes that I hurt you in that moment. Why? We have relational equity. I know her. I know what her eyes say. And so we can come back together, and that happens quick, so we can go fast, and the cost is low to our relationship. We've fortified it over the years. So in the same way, start practicing with those people that you have a lot of relational equity with. There's some places where you have some give in that space. Your parents are a really good place to start for a lot of you. Because they really love you and have your heart and want the very best for you. So if we don't have a lot of relational equity, we have to move very, very slowly. And it will cost a great deal to us if we get it wrong in the midst of this. That's why we want to go slowly, okay? I think it would be right for us to say in the church that it would benefit the world, and the kingdom of God if we had enough relational equity and trust built so that we could move faster to affect more people to advance the kingdom of God. Is that true? Yeah. Do we want to see the world change in our lifetime, in the next generation? Yes. Then we have to work on building trust within the church, within our missional communities, within discipleship. We have to do these things and build it from this place, there's no faster way than to build trust with God and with each other. And so in the same way, if we are spiritually building our stamina, then what we're going to do is we're going to say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to go around for months or years carrying this anger, this worry, this fear, this depression. I am going to do that divine exchange, and I'm going to get faster at that. This isn't mine. This isn't my inheritance. This isn't what you've given me, Lord. So I give you that part, and I receive from you this. And every time that happens, you're building relational equity with the Lord. You're building friendship and trust. You're filling it, filling in those gaps. And this is so important because we build health by establishing trust, because trust builds relational equity. And Dr. Reggie McNeil says this. I love this so much. 
teams, families, um, missional communities, put anything in there. Use trust as currency. If it is in short supply, then the team is poor. If trust abounds, the members of the team have purchased power with each other to access each other's gifts, talents, creativity, and love. These things are not to be exploited or manipulated because that would be unhealthy. Can we agree? Yes. Creativity, gifts, love, these are good exchange things between healthy individuals in relationship. This is what we need and what our hearts long for. This, in fact, is why God made us for himself and for one another, is to exchange these things, to write songs together, to share stories together, to eat each other's meals. This is what he did. And we get to do that when there's relational equity built. This is healthy and good. Trust has to be nurtured and protected. And when it is, there's freedom in conversation. This means that there's honesty, feedback, and dialogue. Now, you might be thinking about your conversations, and you're like, I'm not very honest. There's not a lot of feedback. There's definitely not a lot of dialogue. That's a place where the Lord is calling you to respond with peacemaking to start that conversation, to build emotional or relational equity and emotional intelligence, to place trust in that gap. Dialogue for me is like a huge thing, and I think in the church it's one um, that is necessary, and as we get good at this, it will move out into the world. Dialogue is this. The conversation elevates as people seek to understand and build concepts together. Greater insight occurs because of the collective ideas of many persons than could be found alone. You really have to trust somebody to be in a dialogue with them. When there was like a hierarchical model for so long um, in churches and, and in um, businesses, and some of that is kind of being dismantled now. It was like there's one way, this is the only way, it's not up for discussion. But now, even as a parent, because there's so much um, relational equity between my kids and I and they're older, I ask them, where would a fun vacation be for you? What would you like about that? Tell me more about what's going on and some things that interest you. There's a dialogue about our vacations. There's dialogue in many instances in your life, and that's an indicator of healthy relationship. So celebrate that if you see it, even in small ways. What about dinner? Celebrate those. You're building relational equity. So the trust equation is this. A team, a family, a relationship with high trust will produce more results faster and at lower cost. That's that T equals equation, okay? So what is our tendency when conflict comes? Last week we talked neurologically, what we just do without even thinking, fight or flight, depending on the circumstance. Today we're going to talk about psychologically really quick. This is how I want us to end because it's going to launch us into what we're going to do next week and prepare us for these biblical peacemaking tactics, which just kind of overlay on these, okay? So the first one, what's our tendency when conflict comes? There's this chart that... Um, I did not design. 
<laughs> if you've been in any managing uh, conflict management course, you've probably seen this. It's very um, effective and it's taught in all kinds of places. So at the top you see a, a high or low concern for self and on the left you see a low or high concern for others. And so let's start with the first dominating one. Dominating, competing, or forcing indicates a high concern for self and a low concern for others. This is a win-lose. And in each of these, there is an appropriate time for each of these responses. So it's not like we're going to throw them all out, the baby with the bathwater. We're not doing that. No babies are getting thrown out. We are going to say it's a win-lose, though, and we're going to find when this is appropriate. These responses are used by people who are more interested in winning a conflict than preserving a relationship. Conflict is a game with one clear winner. They're strong and self-confident, and their goal is to put pressure on their opponent to eliminate them, thereby eliminating the conflict by winning. They make great lawyers. They also make great Super Bowl winners. You don't want somebody who's like, oh, I'm sorry I hit you so hard. I won't do that next time. <laughs> no, if you're playing football, you're coming to win, to defeat the opponent. So there's times when this is effective. It's also appropriate if there's an emergency. You need somebody who's direct and decisive and takes quick action. Anytime there is a decisive action, they will usually step in and say, here's the answer. And sometimes we need that. So avoiding withdrawing would be the opposite end of the spectrum. This is a, the same physiological response as flight. It means that you hide and you run. You preemptively figure out all possible ways to avoid conflict. Bury the pain is the mantra. Stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. Hide your head. Conceal. Don't feel. For this, I want you to know that hope is not a strategy. Hope is a gift that the Lord gives you, but hope is not a strategy. Prayer is an effective strategy. Peacemaking is an effective strategy. But you cannot bury your head in the sand and say, I hope it's okay. I hope they see it one day. You guys, the church has become complicit with stuff like that. That is not our call. We've called to make peace. And it's a common approach in the church. This is a terrible long-term um, effect. It could lead to resentment and bitterness if issues are avoided long-term. So when is this appropriate? Two places we can see. If the issue's trivial, the guy that drove by you, like this is to overlook an offense, and that's okay. You don't have a lot of relational equity built with the guy who drove by you on Bloomingdale and told you he didn't like you, right, in his own way. You don't have that, so you don't need to worry about that. You just let it go. That's peace responding in your heart. So you ignore it the first time, and that's okay, too. When else is it? Elevated emotions. My husband is like a master at this in our house of three girls. And their emotions can be all over the place, especially when they're little and they just have a tantrum. He does not engage. He's like that teacher who the whole class is going crazy and they just stand there. I'm not going to engage with you. I'm not going to put myself there. I'm just going to wait till you're quiet. Only they don't say any of that. They just stand there. 
with their presence, and they withdraw, and they're like, okay. And then the whole class is like, oh no, what happened? So there are appropriate responses for that. Accommodating, obliging, and smoothing, these are low concern for self and a high concern for others. So an example of this would be, I want to go out to eat for dinner because I don't want to cook, but my husband wants a home-cooked meal because he ate out three days last week. This is a high degree of cooperation for me. I don't want to argue, and I want to just give him what he wants, and that's fine. I'll go ahead and cook. It'll take too long, and I'll have the energy anyway, right, to deal with it. So somebody sacrifices. I'll make the meal that he wants. This seems also like very biblical, and it is a supernatural response over a long term. This is the Holy Spirit coming into those places where your desires take a seat to the throne of God's, okay? So you can't do this, though, on your own for too long. You have to have a voice in the relationship and share your concerns. Now, when else would this be appropriate? If you are in submission to an authority, you have a boss, they might have more context than you do, and you need to oblige, you need to say, I don't know about this as much as I thought I did. If my husband said, hey, we actually don't have any money to go out to eat, I'd be like, okay, I oblige. We have no money. He has more knowledge about that situation than I would, so we're going to say, you got it. So it also helps to preserve the relationship when there is dysfunction or past hurt. It may be, this, but this has an expiration date. On it. So if there's a place where you're obliging because there's some dysfunction, it's to maintain what you have so, so that person can move in to get the help they need, and then you can return to the issue at hand, okay? We can't sustain that for too long. Compromise, we often say, let's compromise, let's compromise. This is not actually the, the best situation. This is a lose-lose. That means neither one of you get what you want. I want tacos. My husband wants meatloaf. We have chicken wings. That's a compromise. But neither one of us got what we wanted. If you compromise for too long like that and neither one of your needs are getting met when they, when they come up, that becomes a problem. You're both sacrificing. The better response, the best response, but let's talk about when that's okay. I want to tell you. This is effective temporarily. Again, we can use this method to make decisions, but if both parties continue to revert to this approach, never really getting what they want, there's greater opportunity for the relationship to weaken. So it's a temporary effect, okay? The last one, the one that we're really going for is integrating, collaborating, and problem solving. This is a win-win. Both parties achieve their goals. This is a high concern for self and others. It's a partnership which is based on mutual respect and love for one another. It's the most generous approach. But this one re requires trust and time and effort. The four other options are often quicker but lead to greater opportunity for offense. Investing time in this approach builds trust among both parties and strengthens the relationship. You put a lot of trust in collaboration when is this appropriate? When there's a complex problem. When there's a complex problem, 
this is where you invest. Not everyone, not everything is going to be complex, so choose wisely, okay? So I know I gave you a lot of information. I want to show one more slide up here to kind of bring it all together and to launch us to where we're going next week. This is the slippery slope of peacemaking. This is by Ken Sandy, his book, Peacemaker, that we've been talking about. The Up at the top in that kind of middle window, this is where we want to live as peacemakers. These are peacemaking responses. And this, the slide I showed you before kind of overlaps with these, and we're going to talk about those next week in the biblical approach to peacemaking. But what I want to show you most is these escape and attack responses that nullify and that vilify. Because here's the enemy's tactic against us. It's the same scheme it's always been. That's to come to steal, kill, and destroy. And at the end of these two responses, the book ends of these are the destruction of life. That is his end game. He wants to steal your peace from you. He wants you to nullify or vilify. And when we nullify and we try to escape and use those responses, there will be denial and flight, and ultimately, our very own lives won't be worth it anymore. And if we attack, we will see assault and litigation and murder. We will end the other person because we've so vilified them that that is the end result. We cannot go any further than that. Let me tell you, friends, God has called us to peacemaking for such a time as this. And I know he has you in this room for his purposes and his glory and for unity among believers in this room, in Brandon in the Bay and beyond. Would you stand with me? I have a very simple response for us today. A simple activation just to continue to let this solidify in our hearts to grow roots. Pray that the roots of peacemaking would be established in your life. We've planted seeds, and now, Lord, I'm asking you to grow those roots. We are watering that seed. We're nurturing that seed, but you make things grow. So, Father, I'm asking you to make peacemaking grow in our hearts right now. Establish your kingdom right now. If you would close your eyes with me. There are two things that are the enemies of trust. The enemy of trust is suspicion. The enemy of trust is skepticism. And both of those things come from a spirit of fear. And this morning we exchanged a spirit of fear for a sound mind. And so I want your agreement today. The Lord wants your agreement today to establish something new. Let this be the building of your spiritual stamina that you're going to lay it down. You're not going to carry it out that door. What would be the point of that? That you would lay down, release those things, and hold tightly to God and the relationships he's given you. Hold tightly 
So I want you to repeat after me. I give you suspicion, God. I give you skepticism. I release it out of my hands and I put it to yours. separate myself from a spirit of fear. I will not have partnership with a spirit of fear. I will not partner with a spirit of fear. I will not partner with a spirit of fear. These mascots are vilification and nullification. Those are his party bandits. And we have exposed you and you have to go right now in Jesus' name. In first service, I saw the Holy Spirit sweeping them out like with a big push broom. So I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come sweep up what we've left here right now. Take it out. It does not belong in this church. It does not belong in your beloved people. So take it out, Holy Spirit. trusting relationship with God right now.